Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Hey listeners, welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host Kat, and we're talking about the Hillside Strangler. Joining me for this episode is Haley. Hi, Haley. Hi. Have you ever heard of the Hillside Strangler? I haven't, but it sounds really scary. Well, I thought out of you, Tress, and I that you would have probably heard this story, more likely to have heard the story than Tress and I because you watch all the documentaries. You, you haven't even seen anything about that? No, I haven't heard of it at all. The murderous spree only lasted five months and claimed ten victims. And it was actually more than ten victims because the last two would have made... 1112, but for the purposes of the Hillside Strangler, they call it 10 victims. It terrorized Los Angeles, California from October 1977 to February of 1978. But before we get into the story of the Hillside Strangler, I think it's important to start with the victims, all women and young girls whose lives ended too soon. So what I'm going to do is we'll actually be reading right now. I'm going to have Haley start and we're going to go through each one of the victims. Okay, the first victim was Yolanda Washington, age 20. Her naked body was found on the slopes of the Forest Lawn Cemetery on the night of October 18, 1977. Her body was naked and cleaned and posed in a lewd fashion. Yolanda was raped and strangled. Her wrist, ankles, and neck bore the marks of the ropes that had bound her. Judith Ann Miller was the second victim of the Hillside Strangler, only 15 years old. On November 1, 1977, her naked body was found on a hillside laying close to the road in a middle-class residential neighborhood of La Crescenta. She had been raped, sodomized, and strangled to death. Her wrists, ankles, and necks bore the marks of the ropes that bound her. She was small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds. She was strangled to death. She had last been seen leaving the fish and chips restaurant at 9 p.m. on the evening before she was found dead. The body of Elisa Teresa Caston, 21 years old, was found on November 6, 1977. She was a waitress at the Health Fair restaurant near Hollywood and Vine. Her naked, strangled body had been found near Chevy Chase Drive in Glendale, near a country club. There was evidence of rape. Her wrist, ankles, and neck bore the marks of the ropes that had bound her. On Sunday, November 13, 1977, two girls, 12-year-old Dolores Ann Cepeda, known as Dolly, and 14-year-old Sonia Marie Johnson, boarded an RTD bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza and headed home. The last time they were seen was getting off the bus on York Boulevard in Avenue 46 and approaching a two-toned sedan. The corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy who had been treasure hunting in a trash heap on a hillside near Dodger Stadium on November 20, 1977. Both of the girls' bodies had already begun to decompose, but it was still determined that they had been strangled and raped. Also on November 20, 1977, hikers found the naked body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler a quiet honor student at the Art Center College of Design on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. Her wrists, ankles, and neck bore the marks of the ropes that had bound her. It was later revealed that Weckler had been injected with Windex. Three days later, on November 23, 1977, the badly decomposed body of 28-year-old Evelyn Jane King, an actress who had gone missing around November 9th, was found near Las Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. The severity of her decompensation prevented determination as to whether she had been raped or tortured, but she had also been strangled like the others. In response, authorities created a task force, 
initially composed of 30 officers from the LAPD, Sheriff's Department, and the Glendale Police Department to catch what the predators now named the Hillside Strangler. Lauren Wagner, 18 years old, had been a student at Monroe High School in the San Fernando Valley and lived with her parents. Her parents had found her car parked across the street from their home with the door ajar. They had gone to bed the previous night expecting her home before midnight. When her father questioned the neighbors, he found that a neighbor woman saw her abduction. The neighbor said that she had seen Lauren pull over to the curb around 9 o'clock in the evening. Two men had pulled their car up beside hers. There was some kind of disagreement, and Lauren ended up in the car with the two men. Her body was found on Tuesday, November 29th, in the hills of Mount Washington on Cliff Drive. That one scares me more than the other ones, that she was home. Well, I feel like I, that scares me because it's like, it's what I do. Like, sometimes I come home late at night and park my car, and there's no one on the street. It's like 1 a.m., and I have to get out of my car and walk across the lawn to the front door, unlock it, and get in. And I don't know why it seems so, it hits home more than, like, a girl leaving work. She was home. She made it home. Yeah. She was in her safety zone. On December 14th, 1997, police found the naked, tortured body of Kimberly Diane Martin, a 17-year-old tall, blonde girl who had been working at the Climax Modeling Agency. It was actually a prostitution agency. Kimberly's last client had beckoned her to apartment 114 at 1950 Tamarind, which turned out to be a vacant apartment. The murder had called from a payphone in the lobby of the Hollywood Public Library on Ivor Street. The final victim was discovered in L.A. on February 17, 1978, when a helicopter pilot spotted an orange Datsun abandoned off a cliff on Angeles Crest Highway. Police responded to the scene and found the body of the car's owner, 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, a student and part-time waitress in the trunk. Her wrists, ankles, and neck bore the marks of the ropes that had bound her, and she had been raped and tortured. It appeared she had been strangled and put in the trunk of her car, which was then pushed off the cliff above. So ten girls. Yeah. Five months. That was ten girls. That was, well, two of them were together. The young girls, the baby girls. Oh. The 12-year-old and the 14-year-old. That's so... In five months. Just Thanksgiving alone were five of them, I think. Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving week 1977 were five yeah. bodies found. Yeah, that's crazy. Do you, I can't imagine people even left their house in Los Angeles. I did read that, I, well, I watched a news reel from back then, and it was people saying how they had put new locks on all their windows, kind of bolted their houses, but these girls were leaving work. They weren't, none of them were in their house. They weren't taken from their homes. They were going about their daily business. Referred to as the Hillside Strangler, singular in the media, the police suspected from pretty much the first victim forward when they withheld it from the press that there were two men committing the murders, not just one. For that almost five months, as bodies of women and girls were piling up, they kept running into block wall after block wall. And part of the reason is each of the bodies, and I didn't mention in each one of those except for Yolanda, the bodies were clean, sometimes with gasoline. So there was not any, there was no way to tell where it had happened at. They knew the bodies were being dumped. So part of the problem with trying to figure out what was going on and where it was happening was that they didn't have crime scenes. There was nothing to investigate. The bodies, someone pulled up, dumped the bodies, and left. So that caused a huge problem for the police, is that they didn't have that crime scene to find evidence. They knew that women had been killed somewhere else, and the bodies were dumped. The lack of evidence made it difficult to get a handle on the murders. The task force... Originally, only 30 LAPD officers was soon increased to over 100. 
they were from the Glendale Police Department, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and the Los Angeles Police Department. There are two detectives. They actually became very famous because of the case. It was Detective Bob Sager from the Los Angeles Police Department and Frank Salerno from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Both of which, if your daughter went missing or you went missing, you would want either one of these men on your case. They took it so incredibly personally. And Bob Sager says part of the issue, he was brought into the case not until, I want to say, who was the victim that went to college? Was an honor student? Um, Christina Weckler. Christina Weckler. He came into the case then, and he was so disturbed because the first three that were murdered were somehow related to prostitution. Somehow. They were girls that had kind of went to the dark side. Christina Weckler and the young girls were just girls. And Christina Weckler sort of, she was the same age as his daughter at the time. So he, if you ever get a chance to watch him on any of the old documentaries, watch him. He talks about how much it affected him and how he couldn't, he, I think he even made a comment of how he went from zero to a fifth of whiskey a day during this case. It was so disturbing and affected his brain so much. But if you ever go missing in L.A., those are the two men that you want looking for you. They were amazing. They knew later, after all the investigation, that part of the problem, and, and this wouldn't happen today because we have the ability to cross-reference things, but during this, there were a 100 or more officers working. They had Bob Sager, who was from one department. They had Frank Solonero, Solonero from another department. And they didn't have a way to cross-reference, like know how many victims were had this and how many. They did know the one thing that was consistent through this entire thing was that all the women had a five-point literature. I knew I would come to that word and not be able to say it. Literature. Which meant that their ankles, wrist, and neck had markings of rope burns. They also knew that all the girls had been strangled. That's how their cause of death was. Even though with one of the victims and they get into when they're finally caught, there's more details about how each one of them died. But all of them had something around their neck. And they know that the girls didn't fight the strangulation. They knew from the evidence in the autopsies that although they were strangled, they didn't fight it. So it was either from behind or they were caught in a compromised position. So they determined from that that the whoever was abducting them was somehow, somehow a person had, they trusted. Oh, really? Oh, that's not what you were going to say. No, they somehow had like the element of surprise. No. If I was getting out of my car and some random person came up to me, I'd be like... No, it was the opposite. Huh. It was someone that they trusted. So originally they were trying to connect all the girls together to figure out how they would all know one person. And the scariest thing is what they finally ultimately came up with and what ultimately was true is that they were disguised as police officers. That so literally terrifying. I know, I heard you. Like you they you sucked in a breath. <laughs> literally terrifying. Pulling girls over. And that's what happened to the one whose dad talked to the neighbors is they pulled up just as police officers saying that they needed to discuss something with her. Yeah. So well I remember when she I first willingly got in their car. When I first got a license and started driving, I was always told if it's nighttime and you can't see the car behind you and you're getting pulled over you can call 
911 and be like, I'm getting pulled over. It's dark. I'm by myself. Is there a cop in my area? And, and you should. And you should always pull into, regardless if you get pulled over at night, you should always, no matter what it is, you turn on your flashers to notify that they, you know that you're getting pulled over and pull over in um, a well-lit area, a shopping center, a police department, fire department. You don't pull over, like, by our house, like a horse ranch. You don't pull over there. So that, I think that was probably the scariest element. I mean, the whole thing's scary, but the scariest element is that they they did, they posed as police officers and the girls thought that they had to go. They got willingly into someone's car. Yeah. And so that's what they mean about the girls not fighting back. And, and, and I don't understand it because by the time a lot of them died, they knew they weren't with police officers anymore. Yeah. But they didn't, the there was no signs of struggle, basically. They, they didn't find that they were drugged or anything. No, they didn't. No, I don't have. I, I don't. No, I don't. I didn't find any record of them being drugged. They were all raped. They were all sodomized. They were all one hundred percent tortured. They. It. It wasn't something but, that happened within a half hour, and the girls were dead. It went on. It was awful hmm. for each one of them. They knew that they were looking for serial killers. And in this case, they believed they were looking for two serial killers. And a lot of the reasons why they believed it was two was because they didn't believe that one person could abduct someone, take them somewhere else, rape, sodomize, murder, strangle them, tie them up, clean the bodies, put the body in a vehicle, drive the vehicle to another location, and then physically move the body. I mean, evidently with the one victim who was only 90 pounds one person could do it but they all were not just 90 pound girls so to get and one of the girls was found on an incline over a guardrail and they knew for a fact that that person that it would have taken two people to get her to the position that she was so they didn't have a lot of precedents to look for two serial killers i mean they knew that the profile and again part of the problem was that there were so many officers there were so many tips coming in they kept it hidden from the media that they believed it was two because it was sort of like their card that they held close to their chest. That if they put it out there, then the killers would know that they were being found. They didn't. They wanted the killing to stop, but they wanted to be able to find them. So they right. never released to the media that there was more than one. The eighth victim is the one who confirmed it was two men, and that was the girl that we were talking about, who the neighbors saw two men. So even though they had suspected it from the very beginning, they knew by Weckler that there were two of them. And then randomly, out of the blue, the week after Thanksgiving, no, I think one of them was found in December, right? In December was the last victim that was found. December 14th, 1997. Was the last one found? And no, and then the final victim was discovered in L.A. on February 17th, 1978. It just stopped. Like, these men weren't sleeping at night. They knew that they would get a call in the middle of the night that there was another woman found, and it just stopped, dead stopped. So they didn't know if the killer slash killers were dead. They didn't know if they had moved away, but they did know for a fact that serial killers don't just suddenly stop doing what they were doing. Suddenly a big break came. In Bellingham, Washington, in January of 1979, Washington police called Los Angeles. They had found the bodies of two women in a car. The bodies had similarities. They had the five-point literature, and they were strangled, and they were, but they were found in the back of a car. And they didn't actually put two and two together just because the two victims, the two women killed, they didn't suddenly know that it was 
the same person. But what had happened is a man named Kenneth Bianche was a local security guard. And these two girls were hired by him to help him guard a house that was having equipment, security equipment put in. Mm -hmm. And these two girls, one, the two girls were, I'm going to tell you who they were. It was Diane Welder, age 27, and Karen Mandek, age 22. Diane Welder worked at a grocery store, and she was working the night that he, I, I never found how they met Kenneth Bianca, Bianchi, but they met him. He had offered, hey, if you and your friends want to come over and help me guard this house, we're having some security, I'll give you both 100 bucks. They, they didn't make $100 for two hours back then working in a grocery store. So Diane happened to be working that night at the grocery store she worked at. She told her boss she needed to take an extended lunch, that she would be gone from 7 to 9. And she told her boss, well, this is why I'm doing it. This guy, Kenneth Bianchi, offered me and Karen 100 bucks each if we watch the house for two hours. I can't turn it down. I need the money. And her boss decided to give her an extended lunch. So her and Karen went over to the house. They met with this Ken, with Ken, and he strangled both of them one at a time. What he did was he invited one. He told this later. He had one come down in the basement as she was walking down the stairs. He strangled her from behind, and then he called the other one down to the basement and did the same thing to her. Luckily, Diane had told her boss where she was, and Karen, the other girl, had told her boyfriend not only where what she was doing and but she also told him the address of where she was going to be so when the girls didn't come back the the boss was asking around like where is she where is she the co-workers were like oh she told us about this guy and then the boyfriend came into the picture karen's boyfriend came in the picture and i know where they are so they searched for her car and they they didn't actually i think it was 24 hours no one could find the girls or this kenneth bianchi that no one else knew but the girls but they knew the name and the, a neighbor on the street where their car was found that their body was in called the police. The police showed up, found the two girls in the back seat, and then the investigation started, and they got the name of Kenneth Bianchi really fast. So they immediately arrested him. They found um, in his car was one of the girls' jackets and then something else. So they put him under arrest really quick. They still hadn't tied it to L.A., but what happened was when they were doing the background on Kenneth after he was arrested, they found his ID for California. And on his ID had an address for Los Angeles. And one of the detectives said, hey, did you hear about the murders happening in Los Angeles where all the girls were strangled? So Washington put it together pretty quickly that the girls had the similarities. They called Frank Salerno in Los Angeles, who immediately flew to Washington and found when they searched Kenneth Bianchi's apartment, found jewelry belonging to the first victim, Yolanda, and jewelry belonging, I think, to the third victim. So they knew they had their hillside strangler. What they didn't know is who was helping him because they knew that he couldn't have done it by himself. And that's why the girls in Washington were found in the trunk of a car and not thrown on a cliffside because he couldn't have done it by himself. So all it did was confirm that he wasn't acting alone yeah so it took something like months for them to get kenneth to tell him tell the police who his accomplice was he wasn't giving it up and he was well they're both sadistic but he was more psychopathic than sadistic i mean he killed the girls he strangled them and raped them um he 
he didn't give up the name, and he went. He was in jail in Washington. I know they they had to rent a private plane to move him from Washington to LA for the charges in LA because the media was so out of control. Yeah, that drives me crazy about stuff like that. Like you have cases now too, and it's just the big high profile cases, and yeah. people get so crazy, and the media gets so insane, it makes it harder. Right, and they and the, they had to hold things, they had to keep things quiet just so things wouldn't get out. And yeah. Prosecutors and defense attorneys and all that stuff would find out information they weren't supposed to find out. And and so they started doing the background on Kenneth Bianchi, and, and this is the information I found about him. He was born May 22nd, 1951. He was born to an alcoholic prostitute mother who gave him up for adoption. He was adopted by Nicholas Bianchi and his wife, Frances, in Francis apparently, and this we find this all the time when we're studying these people, is that they have a crazy mom. I mean, just like Northcott in the Wineville chicken coop murders. He was raised by a domineering mother. She berated him. She called him a pathological liar. She took him to doctor after doctor and said, this is wrong with him, this is wrong with him. He was still peeing the bed at 12 or something. So she made him wear a feminine napkin in his clothes. So... They were just weird. They were. Well, that's probably why his first few victims, her, her first, his first few victims, were prostitutes. But his mother, his biological mother, was a prostitute, not his adoptive mother. That was, I'm talking about his adoptive mother right now. He didn't. He never knew who his real mother was, other than she was a prostitute, an alcoholic and a prostitute who couldn't keep him. But Francis is the one who raised him, and she was a domineering, scary woman. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. A high IQ, but he was an underachiever. He was kicked out of numerous schools. Never did well. His mom called him lazy. When his father died, he never even showed any sign of grief. Never. So, again, we're going back to the childhood where people knew they were crazy when they were young. You know something. And didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1975, at the age of 24, Kenneth was sent to live with his older cousin, Angelo Bueno, 41 in Los Angeles. So that's where it all started. That's where it started. He's called his cousin, but he wasn't really his cousin. Like I said, he was actually adopted. So it was his adoptive cousin. And though Angelo, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Angelo. Angelo Bueno was born October 5th, 1934 in Rochester, New York, a first-generation Italian immigrant. He had developed an extensive criminal history ranging from failure to pay child support, grand theft auto, and assault. He was a self-described ladies' man, and he ran a business doing auto upholstery out of... The pictures look like it's a house, but then another picture looks like a business now. Initially, Ken was impressed with, with, with 
Angela's fancy clothes and all the girls that hung out at his house. And this is what uh, I'll never understand about girls. It comes out later how sadistic Angela was and how abusive he was to women. Like he thought of them uh, not even as not human. He They were his toys to enjoy. Just in general with friends too? Everybody. Oh. His, he had been married. He had girlfriends and girls still hung out at his house like they would go over there and he was sadistic they there is a university and you can google it i think i want to say it's bradford university did personality profiles on both of them and the one well they're both gross but the one on angelo has girls saying like how he treated him in the trial they did that too but how horrible he was and how abusive and awful he was and they're both psychopaths they're both crazy on their own but what the psychiatrist that got involved once the trial started and the police officers, uh, one of them was quoted as saying something like, individually, they were psychopaths. Together, they were the definition of evil. Yeah. They brought out that in each, each other. other. Right. Um, Angela was more than happy to share his girls, quote unquote, with Ken. They lived it up. They were partying. They had tons of girls around. And they got along as well as, t- as they can. I mean, they he was his cousin and... They shared women and did what they did, but they they didn't like each other. They weren't decent to each other. Ken tried to get his goal was always, and this is so creepy too. And this is if the other thing creepy out. This didn't creep you out too. Ken was always trying to get into different police departments. He got turned down by so many police departments. And during the strangling, during that five months, he went on police ride-alongs. Oh my god! With the police and would like bring up the hillside strangler and. The cops that they were, he was assigned to to do the, because you've done a ride along. Yeah. Can you imagine a psychopathic serial killer doing the same thing that you were doing? No. <laughs> that would be scary. Is that so horrible? Yeah. It's again, we go back to the whole thing at the end of Lady Killers is how um, I talk about how serial killers and murderers, they can be your next door neighbor. They can, he went on ride alongs with police. Yeah. I mean, when Ken couldn't get a job, they came up with this brilliant idea to basically become pimps. They had found this girl, her name was Saber, and I don't, I'm not sure, when I, or I think I have her last name later on, but they told, they convinced her that they knew people in modeling agency in the film industry and stuff, and if she, they bought her clothes, they took her shopping, she was probably a runaway, she was really young, in 14 to 16. They let her live with them, and basically turned into her into a prostitute. And they had kidnapped another girl, I think her name was Becky, and they kept the girls under lock and key. They wouldn't. They both tried to get away. They couldn't. Wouldn't. So that was the beginning. Was that? And then both girls ultimately ended up running away, and they thankfully survived. They lived with serial killers and didn't even know it. That's they terrifying. Both survived, and went on to. They both testified during the trial. They had, and this is how their first, first victim happened. They had asked a prostitute. I mean, they lived in Hollywood. The Hollywood environment is covered, and prostitutes and things like that right they bought a list of johns to start their business and i'm holding not that anyone can see me i'm holding quotes in the air around business of pimping out saber and who i believe her name was becky and the list turned out to be a fake list and they had bought it from a girl and they never i never found her name and yolanda the first victim so when they found out that the list was fake they went looking for yolanda and the other woman they happened to find Yolanda. 
So Yolanda was their first murder, and it was payback for the fake list. But what it did was show them how much they enjoyed killing and, yeah. and raping and sodomizing and doing all the things that they did. And, and what they would do is they would just kind of look at each other and go, hey, do you, one of them would be like, hey, you want to go cruise? And that was the indication that they were going to go out and get. That's so gross. I know. And they ended up finding a whole bunch of information out from Kenneth because he he was willing to give up information for the attention. So he would give information to each one of the victims. And with Yolanda, it was um, the fact that she pissed them off. And he felt very justified in what they did to Yolanda because she gave them a raw deal. With the other girls, he gave specific... One of the girls was um, strangled, but she didn't actually die of that. She died of asphyxiation because they put a bag over her head and the pipe from the gas stove into the bag. Yeah. Another girl they tried to inject with a Windex. I think you read that. And it didn't kill her, so they ended up strangling her. But they tried all these different ways to kill people. And he just, like, gave up his information. Stoic. Matter of fact. Willingly. Well, I will get into that. No, I mean, he kind of goes, he's crazy. He does all kinds of crazy things. But the one, the point of what I was trying to tell you is that he openly discussed all the different murders. Felt justified for whatever reason for each one of them that happened, except for the two girls, Dolly and Sonia, the one that was 12 and 14. Yeah. He refused to talk about them. He wouldn't give any details. It was almost as if the police officers and the investigative um, gentleman and the psychiatrist all said it was almost as if he was embarrassed that he murdered a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. Yeah. Never said that he had a conscience about it, but there was a level of embarrassment about it. I don't know. He did everything. When he was finally arrested, I think he was arrested January 12, 1979 and charged with the murders, but he wasn't charged until six months later. And this you're going to love because you love the whole legal side of criminal justice. That's sort of your gig. He... It was considered the long... I think it's still considered the longest trial in the history of Los Angeles. Really? It went on forever. And part of the reason is because Bianchi did everything to avoid prosecution. He feigned multiple personalities so that he could get in. And he convinced two psychologists. Two psychologists believed that he had multiple personalities and that he didn't... He didn't commit the murders. Someone named Steve Miller committed the murders. One with his alter egos. One with his split personalities. Or is he just saying that? Yes, he convinced two psychologists that he he didn't really do it. He had no recollection of doing it. He wanted the insanity plea, basically. Right. The thing is, though, that the third psychologist... Well, it was devastating to the detective, because they were like, the guy knows what he was doing, and they're watching all this. They, they were there, and they were like, no, 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 he's not. Even though two psychologists who are beyond schooling than the detectives are believe that he really was a split personality... And then they, they convinced someone to bring in a third psychologist. And this third psychologist says it's really odd that you only have these two other personalities. It's, it, that never happens. It's usually the third. And then suddenly he came up with the third. And so then, and he was referring to it incorrectly. He would say he when he referred to Steve Miller. Or he would say I. That's what it was. He would say I when he was referring to Steve Miller, his second personality, rather than he. Right. So it wasn't until they brought in the third psychologist that they figured out that he was lying yeah. to get the insanity plea. So this it dragged out forever. They brought in a number of mental health experts. 
it, like I said, it took the third one to finally expose the ruse. Police were already aware of Angela Bono through the investigation into Bianchi's background. So Kenneth hadn't given up his cousin yet, but the police knew about Angelo, and they started investigating him and following him. And um, the police officer I was talking about earlier, the detective I was talking about earlier, Bob Sager, he was one of the ones interviewing Angela Bono and got so disgusted with him. He said he broke every law, every rule book for detectives and police work. He picked him up and threw him against a wall in the middle of... So I'm saying, if you go missing, find these two gentlemen. They you want Bob Sager, too. And Frank Salerno. Yes, you want them on your side. Um, yeah, he said he threw him up against a wall and called him all kinds of names and just told him what a vile piece POS that he was. And the sad thing is, they knew that Bueno was involved. They knew that he was Kenneth's cousin. So this went on for a very, very long time. But they couldn't connect him conclusively to the killings. And they finally arrest him because Kenneth Bianchi... To avoid prosecution in Washington, which he knew the death penalty was what he was going to get in Washington, he made a plea deal that if he gave up his cousin, they would move him to California to be tried. I'm surprised it took them that long to come up with a plea deal that, plea deal that would give up. Well, because he was doing all kinds of crazy things. At one point, while he was in jail, he convinced a woman, her name was Veronica something, he convinced a woman that fell in love with him while he was in jail. I don't, another, again, girls, Why? Yeah, there's not enough eye rolls. Come on. She fell in love with him while he was in prison, and he convinced her to try and kill a girl, like the Hillside Strangler did with the five-point literature. And he even smuggled out a, an amount of semen for this woman to leave on the body of the girl that he killed, if she killed. And she tried. She convinced some girl to go to a hotel room, tried to strangle her. Thank God the girl fought back. And then she was arrested, too, so she went to jail, too. But this was all going on at the same time. She tried, because he and this Veronica lady figured if there was a body found while he was already in jail, then they would know he wasn't the Hillside Strangler, because he's in jail, he couldn't have done it. But he smuggled, she smuggled his semen out and was going to put it on the body of this girl. Did they have DNA back then, though? It might not. Well, yeah, that kind of DNA, yeah, they knew. Yeah, they, had, they were able to test that. They don't do the DNA they do now to trace family history and all that stuff but yeah they could have tied him through dna through semen yeah especially a cup of it i mean yeah, what was she gonna do with it he ended up within the plea deal he gave his cousin up in exchange for the prosecution to move him to la he gave a detailed statement about the los angeles murders implicating bueno and pleading guilty to five counts of homicide only five and i don't understand that Bueno was arrested on the 22nd of October 1979, and he was arrested and indicted on 10 counts of first-degree murder. So explain that. Yeah. Why was he... I mean, they go after what they can for sure convict you of. But this is where the trial gets really, really crazy. Bite the trial commencing in 1981. So they are arrested in 79. Trial did not commence till 1981. The problem, though, is that pretrial motions delayed any progress until May of 82, the mountain of forensic evidence and the number of victims served as slow proceedings, causing the case to drag on for two years. Bianchi tried his best to hamper the proceedings, providing a reluctant witness and making deliberately contradictory statements, causing the judge to threaten to rescind the plea bargain. So, we already decided we love Bob Sager. We already decided we love Frank Solonero, Solonero, the other detective. Nothing compares to the judge. Yeah. The judge was 100% amazing and wasn't going to let anything go bad in this case. 
Investigators in Los Angeles had developed collaborating evidence that they felt that they needed to complement Ken Bianca's implication of Angelo as his accomplice. Now remember, Kenneth made a plea deal that he would be tried in Los Angeles as opposed to Washington if he implicated who his accomplice was. So he had pretty much ratted out his cousin completely. There were fibers that were found on Judy Miller's eyelid and Lauren Wagner's hands that they know came from Angelo's house and his shop that he had at his house. Animal hairs that were stuck to Lauren's hands were from rabbits that Angelo raised. He raised rabbits. Can you imagine? He was a sadistic man and he raised animals. Like, I can't yeah, imagine. They had an imprint of a police badge in his wallet. So it was still his wallet and he, there was an imprint of the police badge. And he had appropriate puncture marks from where the badge had been pinned. And two people had positively identified Angelo from a photo lineup. Two of the witnesses. I think it was the neighbor's. One of them was the neighbors of Weckler. Yeah. But none of this was important to the prosecutor. His name was Roger Kelly. Kelly had a reputation for not pushing cases where there was any chance that he was going to lose. This is where you fall in love with the judge. The deterioration in Ken Bianchi's credibility was a key issue. Now, they were going to put Kenneth Bianchi on the stand against his cousin. Right. He kept changing his mind. Like, when they, when he was saying that he had all these multiple personalities he came back after they said no 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 you don't he came back saying he didn't remember who his accomplice was he doesn't even remember he did it after he had confessed so the case started to fall apart really bad and um the superior court this is a judge's name his name is judge ronald george there were two people from the county that were appointed to defend angelo the first key decision they had was whether or not to sever the non-murder counts, the sodomy, pimping, rape, all that stuff, from the murder counts. If those counts were separated, the jury wouldn't necessarily be able to hear about the unspeakable, brutal character of Angelo, where Saber and Becky would say how sadistic he was, and his treatment of women in general. The judge decided to sever the murder counts from the non-murder counts to avoid a reversal on appeal. So he's basically looking ahead. Further expected that the prosecution would find some way to introduce the most damaging character testimony. So even though he was removing the non-murder items, he figured that all these witnesses they were going to pull up, like Saber again and Becky, would somehow reintroduce his character and he would, you know. He would end up serving his purpose. Right. Then on July 6, 1981, Kenneth Bianchi gave an unbelievable performance. To convince the court that he could not use, they could not use his testimony against Angelo, Kenny said that he may have faked that personality disorder and that he didn't know if he was telling the truth or that Angela was even involved. So they had this whole plan that Kenneth was going to testify against him, and then he gets up and says, uh, I don't remember anything. In fact, he said he didn't even think he was involved in the killings. After his performance in court, the prosecutor, this Roger Kelly, decided it, he, he did a motion to dismiss all two counts of murder against Angelo and to drop any prosecution of him of the Hillside Strangler. He, this Roger Kelly, this prosecutor, never wanted to do any cases that he had any chance of losing. So because of Kenneth's big grandstand saying that he doesn't remember even doing it himself, let alone Angela doing it with him, testified he thought there was too much of a chance he would lose the case. So he made a motion to dismiss the whole thing. Dismiss everything against Angela. Angela was going to walk free. Yeah. And they were just going to go after Kenneth Bianchi. Okay, so not only were these detectives, Sager and Salerno, freaking out because they were there, losing their minds, the judge was like, meh, let me think about this, which is very, very uncommon. 
typically if a prosecutor defense, if they make a motion, the judge goes with the attorney and says, yeah, I, I get why you're doing that. But he said, I'm going to, I'm going to think about this. And that was on July 6th. And then he came back on July 21st, which I think is really interesting. He took a long time. And again, that's why the trial drags out. But Judge George gave his ruling on the motion to dismiss the charges against Angelo. This was his quote. We believe there is more than sufficient evidence to show presumption of guilt by Mr. Bono. I think the evidence that people put on at the preliminary is sufficient to withstand any conviction. The jury believing that Mr. Bianchi and could convict Mr. Bono. The judge then listed various elements of evidence that Kelly had failed to note when he tried to have the case dismissed, which the judge felt was more than enough to meet the requirements for collaborating evidence of an accomplice, particularly were the Lauren Wagner fibers, the ones that I told you from the chair, and um, the hair that was found on one of the victims where Bianchi said that she had been assaulted, like where the, the animal hair was. The judge then concluded, concluded, dismissal would not be in furtherance of justice, nor is it a function of the court to automatically rubber stamp a prosecutor's decision to abandon the people's case. Applicable standards indicate that a prosecutor must, under ordinary circumstances, pursue the prosecution of a serious charge where there is sufficient evidence for a jury to convict, without any concern for the consequences to his own reputation should he be unsuccessful in obtaining a conviction. So basically the judge said, I don't give a shit if this is going to affect your career. This guy did it, and you're going to do and you're going to prosecute him. Right. So he went, because his, he made a motion to dismiss the charges were denied, the judge expected the district attorney's office to get their shit together, basically, and effectively prosecute Angela Bono. So then, because they felt like they couldn't do it, they brought in the attorney state general. And then they brought in invest special investigators and two new people, and they quickly decided there was enough evidence to prosecute. But that's, how scary is that? Like, just because a guy didn't want on his record or in his resume... To have a loss. To have a loss. He was going to let this sadistic son of a bitch go back out into the world. Yeah. Uh, it's, again, but it's just indicative of how, how this went on. But they, the, all of the prosecutors that were brought in from the state attorney's general's office all agreed that they needed to prosecute him. So then the trial went on. In November, the case went into trial and was immediately disrupted by different continuances and motions by the defense and appealed all the way to California Supreme Court. And then the jury selection alone took three and a half months. The trial didn't actually begin for real until the spring of 1982. So they were arrested in 79. The trial actually didn't begin until May, the spring of 1982. After a steady parade of witnesses, including the girls that he had brutalized, Becky Spears, Sabra Hannon, and others, all attested to Angela's sadism. When it came time for Kenny to testify, he was in no mood to cooperate. That is, until the judge, again, we love Judge George, reminded him, if you don't get your crap together, you're going back to Washington. So then Kenny did a big turnaround and decided to cooperate again because he was violating his plea bargain agreement. He really did not want to go back to Walla Walla, yeah, which comes into play later. But that was his biggest fear is that he wanted to be in Los Angeles, California, lenient California. They finally got him to cooperate enough, and unfortunately, during cross-examination, the defense kind of got him to waver again, but um, the judge, worrying that the waver-wavering of Kenneth was going to affect the jury, he ordered a van and had each, had the jury put in the van with him, 
and driven to all the sites where all the girls were found. And then they each, they got an explanation at each site, how the girl was found and how she was murdered. And it, it physically affected the jury. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but don't you love that judge? Yeah. He was not going to let these two men walk free. They had a helicopter overhead that illuminated um, where the two young girls, Dolly and Sonia, were found. They pointed out to the jurors where Angela's mother's house was, where his house was, and how close they were to all like the dump sites of all the bodies. After more than 1,000 exhibits and 250 witnesses, now you know why it went on for so long, the prosecutors got an excellent break. A woman who Angela terrorized at the Hollywood Library while he's waiting for Kenny to call on the Climax Modeling Agency, remember the girl that they called from the Hollywood Library? Yeah. The night they killed Kimberly Martin, um, came forward to testify that Angela was a man that had menaced her. The testimony tied Angela now to the payphone, which had been used to summon Kimberly to her death. Finally, the prosecution finished and the defense began their efforts. Angela was not cooperating with his own attorneys. Their presentation was considerably shorter, and they tried to impunge the testimony of Marcus Camden on the basis of mental instability, which is ridiculous. Marcus Camden was one of the witnesses also, but they, were, they weren't successful. The, the ride that the, the jury took kind of just... Sealed the deal. I, I think. There's a lot more information. They, they talk in the court about Veronica Compton and what she did, um, how Kenny tried to frame Angelo, but it just, it just went on and on and on. Roger Bourne gave closing ar- arguments. It took him an 11 full days. He addressed every issue in what became the longest criminal trial in U.S. history at that time. But I think it still is. I'm not sure. We'd have to look it up. I mean, how long was it, OJ? I was going to say, how long was that? (laughs) Forever, I feel like. (laughs) He concluded with the defense at the end of their argument said to you that you could be fooled by Kenneth Bianchi. I will say to you that in the face of all the evidence, both corroboration of Kenneth Bianchi, independent of Kevin Bianchi, if in the face of reason Angela Bono is not convicted of murders of these ten women then you will have been fooled by Kenneth Bianchi. You will have been fooled by him, and you will also have been fooled by Angela Bono over there and by his two attorneys. The evidence supports his guilt and a finding of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury was then sequestered, and even though the jurors had been a harmonious group during the whole two years of the trial, like they all got along, I guess, it was not really clear if they would come back with a guilty verdict. They began deliberating on October 21st. Finally, the jury came to agreement 10 days later, October 31st, 1983, at least on the murder of Lauren Wagner, Angela was found guilty. On November 3rd, they voted that Angela was not guilty of the murder of Yolanda Washington. A few days later, they found guilty on Judy Miller's murder. Under California law at the time, as a multiple murderer, Angela faced a death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. The following guilty verdicts were on Dolores Sapita and Sonia Johnson, the two young, young girls. Kimberly Martin, Christina Weckler, Lisa Kasdan, and Jane King, and then finally Cindy Hedspot. Angelo, who took the stand briefly to show his contempt, said, my morals and constitutional rights have been broken. Poor baby. <laughs> the jury, which was able to decide whether to give him the, they were given the opportunity to give him the, either the death penalty or life in prison, deliberated for only an hour before sparing him the death penalty. They decided not to put him to death. And you know why? I actually watched interviews with some of the jurors. They thought death was too easy. I see that. You do? Yeah. The judge did not agree. Well. The judge statement was, Angela Bono and Kenneth Bianchi subjected various of their murder victims to the administration of lethal gas, electrocution, strangulation by rope, 
lethal, and lethal hypodermic injection. Yet the two defendants are destined to spend their lives in prison, housed, fed, and clothed at taxpayers' expense, better cared for than some of the destitute law-abiding members of our community. The judge sent Bianchi back to Walla Walla in Washington to serve because of all the crap that he pulled. Yeah. And he didn't care. His comments at closing were that he wished that it was in his power to change the sentence to that of death. The jury, he said that the jury disagreed with him because they felt death would be too easy. They wanted them to live out their lives in prison, hoping they would be, that would be more of a punishment than death, that death would be too easy. Angelo Bono was sent to Folsom Prison where he stayed in his cell, fearing injury from other inmates. Kenneth Bianchi ultimately was sent back to Walla Walla Prison in Washington, but was still trying to get transferred to a prison outside of Washington State. Bueno was found dead on September 24th, 2002 at Prison State Prison. Bueno, who was alone in his cell at the time of his death, died of a, of a heart attack. Bianchi is serving his sentence in Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. He was denied parole August 18th, 2010 by a state board in Sacramento. He is eligible to apply for parole again in just seven years in 2025. It's reported that the shop where Angela worked, the location of the murders, is haunted, and that in the night, over the sounds of Los Angeles traffic, the sounds of women sobbing can still be heard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to follow and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.